Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. It's good to be here with you guys. Uh, my name is Chris Kretzu. I'm the campus pastor here, and I love uh, what Pastor Moses, our senior pastor, was saying. Uh, he was just identifying and pointing out and articulating the uh, incredible team that we have uh, as a church. It's not just this one campus. South Hills has multiple campuses, and I love that we get to be here together and to be able to uh, be a part of this community together and the staff uh, at all of our churches, but also here at Costa Mesa. Uh, there's a lot of times we thank our volunteers, and I don't know that I publicly thank our staff enough, but especially after the last few weeks of the egg hunt with over 800 people, uh, the doggy egg hunt with uh, 75 people and 35 dogs, not that anybody's counting, but uh, 35 dogs and Easter sweaters. Uh, so, uh, And then after Easter services, we did three Easter services this past Sunday. We had about 425 people uh, between those three services and so much fun together. And so I do want you guys, I want to ask you guys, uh, if you see a staff member on your way out, if you know who one of the staff members is, please just give them a high five, tell them thank you, and let them know that you appreciate them. Uh, we are finishing up our series today called Worth Repeating. We have been in this series all month, and uh, we've been looking at some of the last things that Jesus said uh, in his life. And uh, last Sunday, obviously, was Easter. We were able to celebrate Easter together, which was so much fun. And uh, we're wrapping this series up today. I'm excited to jump in here with one of the last things, or actually the last thing that Jesus said, uh, and so I'm excited for that. Um, I've been a pastor full-time for almost 17 years, uh, 16, 17 years, somewhere in there, and uh, I remember it was not long after I had my first job as a pastor. I wasn't the lead pastor. I was just one of the pastors, and uh, I remember when I, it came time for me to do my first wedding, to officiate my first wedding, and it wasn't a couple that asked me to officiate their wedding. I was told by another pastor you're going to officiate that couple's wedding. And I was like, uh, okay, you know, like not really sure. I'd never done it before. I don't want to screw this up, you know. And, uh, and it was um, a nightmare. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was very nervous, but I felt way over my head because I wasn't even married at that point. I was single, and so I'm going to now talk about marriage and commitment and love, and, and I didn't even know how to be in a healthy relationship, let alone a, a marriage relationship. And so it was really scary. I felt way over my head. Uh, I went through uh, to the day. Uh, I went up to the, the couple, met them on the day of the ceremony, and, and we were talking a little bit, and they're like, oh my gosh, how many weddings have you done? And I said, how long have you guys been together? Uh, just like, let me avoid this question altogether. Uh, and, um, and so everything went fine. They got married and said, I do. And I blacked out somewhere in the middle, but everything was, it, it turned out okay. So, but I felt way uh, in over my head. And I don't know if you guys have had one of those experiences where you felt like you got kind of pushed into doing something maybe before you were ready. You didn't feel confident. You didn't necessarily maybe feel like you had the experience or the knowledge. Uh, but it's not just stuff that we experience as, as adults. This happens all throughout our life. I remember when I was 
a teenager. I grew up in North Carolina, and I started my driving test in North Carolina. No, it wasn't on a tractor, which is what everybody assumes. Uh, but uh, I started my driving test when I lived in North Carolina. And I remember I would drive through, like, back roads and stuff. But I remember the first time that the driving instructor wanted me to get on the freeway. Does anybody else remember that? Uh, that first time driving on a freeway? I was terrified. Uh, I was like, oh, I don't know if I should do this. Like, I'm not sure if I'm ready. Uh, I remember... Uh, with my son, he's 10 now, uh, my older son, I remember when he graduated from a bike that had training wheels to a bike without training wheels. Uh, and if you've ever helped a child go through that phase, no kid has ever really been like, yeah, I'm totally done with training wheels. I'm ready to go without it. They're all a little bit terrified. They're a little bit scared. I'm not ready. I can't do this. But as a parent, there's a sense of, no, I, you are ready. You can do it. And I'm here with you. So this is something that we really kind of experience all throughout our lives in different ways. We know what it feels like to be put in a situation where we don't necessarily quite feel ready. One of the things that's funny when you read the stories throughout the scripture, Jesus interacting with the disciples and some of his other followers is you see kind of that theme come up over and over again where the disciples, whether they are saying that they don't feel ready or maybe even as we're reading these accounts of Jesus's life and the way the disciples you know, responded, we're like, oh, I don't think that they're ready. Uh, it's interesting, you know, when Jesus has this confidence in their abilities and their capabilities and what they're able to do, he was always pushing them into situations where they felt like they were in over their heads a few examples, um, these are all in, in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, but there was one time, uh, you may be familiar with the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And uh, in that story, the reason why those 5,000 people got fed is because Jesus was on a hillside preaching. The disciples came to Jesus because it was kind of getting close to dinner time, and they said, Jesus, you need to send these people away so they can find food. It's dinner time, and, and they're getting hungry. And Jesus tells the 12 disciples, no, you feed them. Uh, and my wife doesn't, uh, she doesn't love when I invite someone over to dinner without letting her know, you know, like one or two people over to dinner without being able to plan. But this is 5,000 plus people. And all of a sudden in this minute, they have to figure out how are we going to make this happen? And obviously Jesus steps in. There's another time where uh, the disciples continue to struggle with the number of people and the crowds that are gathering around Jesus. And these, they weren't trained on crowd control or anything like that, but they're trying to figure out how this, how do we do this? Jesus was always reaching and caring for and ministering to people that were kind of on the fringes of society, people that would have been uh, uncomfortable for the disciples to be around. Uh, there's all these different experiences where the disciples, you kind of get this idea that they were constantly being pushed into a place where they didn't necessarily feel like they were able to or ready to do what they needed to do. And I think that we can probably all relate to that in one way or another, Last week, like I said, we were talking about Easter and the resurrection, and, and again, I, I don't need to go through the whole thing, but you have Jesus' closest friends and disciples, Jesus' mother, they see this trial, they see Jesus crucified, they see his lifeless body taken off the cross and put in a tomb. None of them are waiting on that first Easter Sunday for Jesus to be resurrected. They all believe that he's dead. None of them thought that he would ever die. They all were afraid, worried, confused, upset, grieving. None of them were counting down backwards on that first Easter morning, 10, 9. Like none of them were, were that confident. Yet Jesus is resurrected and he speaks with the disciples. He speaks to his followers. He shows up. He has this conversation. And, and you can kind of imagine the emotional 
and the spiritual highs and lows that they were all experiencing all over the place, the, con- the confusion and the joy, the hope and the fear, all of these feelings back and forth, both of them together. After a little bit of time had passed, Jesus arranged to meet with them, and there's still a little bit of a mess. In Matthew chapter 28, we're going to look at uh, this passage here. It's a somewhat familiar one for a lot of people, and we're going to dive into some of these verses. It says, Matthew 28, this is Jesus uh, and the disciples. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I just want to pause there real quick because I always, I feel like it's just really, really important for me to point out as often as possible that the disciples who lived and walked with Jesus, that watched him die, give his life, and then ultimately were interacting with him, resurrected, they're worshiping him and also still kind of doubting. I think it's so important for us to, to recognize and to remember that when we struggle with doubts and questions and fears and things about this, we're in pretty good company. We're not the only ones that wrestle with that. The people that were there when it happened wrestled with this thing. Even when we sing songs together, sometimes on a Sunday morning, we sing out worship songs about who God is. And sometimes, and you don't have to admit to this, I'll admit to it for all of us, sometimes we sing words that we don't necessarily know if are true. We sing words that we sometimes are like, yeah, I'm not sure if I actually feel like that's accurate. I'm not sure if I actually believe that that's happening, but we're still singing these words. And I just want you to know that that's okay. It's okay to kind of step forward on both sides of this fence of, of believing and hoping and doubting and questioning Jesus did not come against the disciples as they were wrestling with that. But it goes on, and Jesus gives them this huge, daunting assignment. In Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And if you guys are uh, church people, if you've been around church, or maybe you're somewhat familiar, you're church adjacent, uh, maybe, uh, you, you may know that this is called the Great Commission. This is the final thing that Jesus says to his followers before he ascends into heaven. He gives them this Great Commission, this great command to go into all of the nations now, these, I, all these words that were used are really specific and intentional words because the Jewish people in that day, they were really committed to one nation, and it was theirs. It was kind of the, the, um, the nation of Israel. That was all that mattered. That was the most important thing. And, and here Jesus is saying, go into all of the nations and make disciples. And I, I love that he, he was specific there. We're going to talk about it for a little bit longer. But this idea, where he says, I, 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 he doesn't say, I want you to go into all nations and make Christians. He says, I want you to go and make disciples. And there's two really important things about that. One is because we can't make Christians. Like, I can barely make myself be a Christian. We don't get to make that decision for other people. That's something that God does in people's hearts. We can open ourselves up to that, but that's not something that we have control over. He doesn't say, I want you to go make Christians. I want you to go make disciples. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, what is a disciple? What does that mean? 
And he goes on and he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey I've, what I've commanded. It's interesting because he doesn't teach, he doesn't say, teach them everything that I've said. Make sure that they have everything memorized. He says, teach them to obey the things that I've said. And so I want to spend a little bit of time because if there was ever a time where someone may have overestimated a person's abilities, I feel like it would be in this moment where Jesus is talking to these 11 disciples who only a couple days ago had given up hope entirely that Jesus was the Messiah. They were hiding in their homes, fearful for their lives. And in this moment, these people, some of them had denied him, some of them had run from him, some of them had been hiding, none of them were fully confident, they're still doubting even while they're worshiping. It's in this moment that somehow Jesus communicates to them that you are the people that are going to carry the message of God's love around the world. The terrified, doubting, somewhat weak, one of you is no longer here because he betrayed me. This group of people are the ones that I'm relying on. But he's not just talking to that 11. When he says this, he's really talking to everyone who would eventually believe in him. Everyone who believed that Jesus is who he said he was. You and I are God's plan for how to reach the world with the message of his love. It's you and I. The Bible is not God's plan for how to reach the world with the message of his love. The church building at 215 Baker Street or any of the other 20 churches on Red Hill, uh, these buildings are not God's plan. You and I are his plan. And if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking he should have a better plan. He chose poorly. Uh, there is a sense of, are you kidding me? Us? That is crazy. We're not ready. We don't have it figured out. How many times in the last year have you seen something about a church or a pastor or just Christians making terrible decisions, having all kinds of, we don't have all the answers. We don't have it all figured out. I can't make, I can't get this all the way around the world. Like, there's got to be a different way. It seems like we would be in way over our heads. And in some ways, we are. But it's a fascinating thing because Jesus doesn't answer any of those questions. He just gives this assignment. He gives this command. And he says, I want you to go and make disciples. And so I want us to think about for a minute what a disciple is. What does he mean by that? So to do that, I'm going to do what everybody's favorite thing in the world is, and I'm going to teach you about first century Judaism. I know, I know, I hear the gasps of excitement coming in. So, uh, but it's important because Jesus uses specific words, and at the time that he uses those words, it meant a very specific thing. Uh, and, and so it's important for us to understand it's called the context of what he was speaking to in that moment. The concept of a disciple was a really deep concept. It was something that had been used. This idea was something that they were very familiar with. And Jesus didn't use it because there wasn't a better word to use. He used it on purpose because of what it means. So I want to give you guys this idea. And I'm going to start off, and again, this is kind of ancient Judaism. This is the way that it would look. Uh, children that were six to ten years, and it was primarily uh, sons, boys at this point, uh, between six and ten years old, they would study the scriptures, and they would memorize the first five books of the Bible. 
It's called the Torah in other places. This would be the law. And, and they would memorize that by the time they're 10 years old. Uh, that's crazy. Um, my son has most of Harry Potter memorized. He's 10. Um, but it's, that's like a lot. Uh, as an adult, I get frustrated when I have to try and memorize a new verse. They're in, memorizing entire books. And it's not just like the cool parts of Genesis, the creation story. This is like Leviticus and Numbers and all kinds. I mean, this is, and it's not just I can start at chapter 1, verse 1, and go through the end. They were able to jump in at any point in any of these scriptures. This was a crazy thing. So after they would memorize this and they would get to this place where they were about 10 years old, then they would move into memorizing the rest of the Hebrew Bible, which uh, for our context, we refer to that as the Old Testament, but they would memorize the rest of the Hebrew Bible. They would spend time not only with those first five books, but all of the other ones. And it wasn't just memorizing it. They also had this ability to say, not only is this what it says, but this is also what it means. And they would be able to have conversations about it. That's, that is so crazy to me that 10 to 14-year-olds would do this. But this is something like this was the highest calling and privilege. This is something that every little boy would want to be able to do. I know some of you guys are like, yeah, I don't really want to be in ministry, so I'm going to choose something else. Like, nobody was picking astronaut at this point. It was like, I want to be a rabbi. I want to be a priest. This was, this was the, the astronaut of that day. I know. You don't believe me. It's okay. Um, so they would spend time learning these things. After that process, around 14 years of age or so, they would go to a rabbi and they would ask that rabbi, that local priest's permission, if they could be his disciple. They would go up to someone and say, can I be your disciple? And at this point, they've already memorized the entire Hebrew Bible. They're able to talk all about it. And once they would ask this rabbi, the rabbi wouldn't just say yes, because obviously they've done so much work, he would interview them and test them. And the whole time when he was doing this interview and this test, he wasn't doing it to see if they knew the right answers. He was actually doing it to see if he thought they would be able to live the way that he lived, that he would be able to teach the way that he teaches, that they had kind of a similar understanding of what the most important thing in the scriptures was. Are you guys tracking with me here? Very reassuring. It wasn't just an information test. It was, who are they? And can they be like me test? And then, if the rabbi accepted them, he would say something that's going to maybe sound familiar to some of you because Jesus said this in his life. They would say, take my yoke and follow me. Take my teachings, the way I understand the scriptures, and follow my teachings. Follow the way that I interpret and live my life. And then they would spend the rest of their life following and studying and learning, not just the information that's in the Bible verses, but how to actually live it out. And there was this blessing of somebody was actually selected to be a disciple of a rabbi. If he actually would choose them, there was this blessing that was spoken over them. And it's kind of funny sounding at first, but it was this beautiful thing. And I think it actually is just as beautiful today. It's just a little bit out of context. If they were selected they would say this phrase, they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because the whole thing was that they were supposed to spend their lives following so closely to this rabbi that the dust from his Birkenstocks or whatever it was he was wearing 
would be kicked up and it would cover them. They would be following this teacher so closely that they would be covered in the dust from everywhere that he went. What a beautiful picture, a beautiful, filthy picture. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And it's fascinating because the disciples would spend all of this time learning from their rabbi, and they would go through this process to be able to get there. And then when you get to Jesus's life, he has an interesting kind of process. And I want to just look at it for a second. It's in uh, Matthew chapter 4. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. I want to pause there for a second. When these children, they would go through this process, when they go to a rabbi and say, can I be your disciple? And the rabbi would interview them. If they were the top of the class, if they were the best of the best, he would often say, yes, you may be my disciple. And if they weren't, he would say, why don't you go learn the family business? Why don't you go become a carpenter? Why don't you go, and they would move them into some other sort of trade. So you have Jesus walking along here, and all of a sudden, he sees these two men, and they're uh, casting their net into the lake because they are fishermen, a.k.a. religious school dropouts. Or maybe not dropouts, they just weren't quite good enough. They, they didn't have what it took to be the top spiritual person, to become a disciple of that priest or that rabbi. It goes on, Jesus says, come follow me and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee. Everybody say Zebedee. It's fun. It's like one of the more fun Bible names to say. They saw these two brothers, James and John. They were both in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets because, again, they were fishermen. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat, and they followed him. Jesus, as this rabbi, which is what he was, he goes along, and instead of waiting for these religious students and the top of their class to come and ask to be his disciple, he went along and he chose people that had flunked out, that were not good enough, that didn't make it to the top, that were not selected, the ones that somebody had told them, you know what, you should probably just take over the family business. I'm not sure if you're going to be good enough or religious enough, or if you're capable of actually living the way that you should live as one of my followers, as one of my disciples. This is who Jesus goes and finds. And he goes on, and every person that he picks is this crazy ragtag group of disciples. None of them were already disciples. They were all doing other things. This is who Jesus chooses to follow him. Jesus chooses this group of people because he believes that they are able to do what he's teaching. They're able to carry out the way he's inviting them to live. So when Jesus chooses his disciples, he does it very differently. When Jesus teaches the scriptures, he does that really differently too. We see in Matthew 22, someone asks him what the most important law is in all of the scriptures. And Jesus responds this way. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law 
and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This idea of love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself, love others well. He says, all of the law and the prophets, which was everybody's, this was their Hebrew scripture. This was everything that they held dear. He says, all of the most important things that you spend all of your time memorizing and caring about, if you just do these two things, you'll take care of the other things. And again, I want us to have a visual of what this looks like. So we made this, I showed this one time a few years ago. Uh, on the top, I simplified Jesus' commands, love God, love your neighbor. And then the white letters below that, all of those things, I don't know if you can read it, but those are uh, that's all of the books of the Hebrew Bible. This is the 39 Old Testament books. And Jesus is saying, I've given you two commands and all 39 uh, Old Testament books, all of the, the law and the prophets, it all hangs on these two commands. If you can do these two, you'll find your way through the rest. And then the ones below that in this more tan color, these are the New Testament books. And the New Testament books obviously weren't written at this point, but these 27 books in the New Testament, they were written trying to help us understand how to love God and love your neighbor. He simplifies it down to this really understandable thing that even a fisherman could get. It's not the best of the best. It's just a really clear, simple invitation that we can all wrap our minds around. And Jesus says, go and make disciples. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is, this is where a disciple would take what they've learned from their rabbi and their experiences in life, and they would teach others. They would show them how to live, how to understand this idea. Jesus expects you and I also to take what he taught us, the way he lived his life, and to invite other people to experience that. It's not just that Jesus expects us to do that. It's actually much more beautiful. It is this incredible picture because Jesus believes that we can do that. Jesus believes in you. He's called and chosen us to follow him. Oftentimes, I'll talk about this idea of what does it mean for us to believe in Jesus? You hear it all the time. Do you believe in God? Are you a believer? And we, it's always this idea of us believing in this spiritual higher power, who God is. How often are we reminded of the fact that Jesus believes in us? He doesn't wait for the best of the best to come and, and have really selective processes. He says, no, you can do this. You didn't make it to the top levels of the religious training. It's okay. You can do this. You didn't make it through all of the classes. It's okay. You can do this. You have a really unfortunate past and a crazy history. It's okay. You can do this. To other disciples, tax collectors, and people that were causing all kinds of issues, it's okay. You can do this. To you in this room and your story, whatever your past is, whatever your, your mistakes, your scarlet letter, your issues, your doubts, like the disciples had when they're standing in front of Jesus, still doubting, Jesus would look at you and say, it's okay. You you can do this. I believe in you to be able to do this. And not only do I believe in you, but I'm actually relying on you as my plan A to reach the world with a message of God's love. Jesus chooses you and is still choosing you. He believes we can live this out. We can follow the way of Jesus. And when it feels terrifying and hard or frustrating or confusing, there's this beautiful promise that he puts at the end 
of this last thing that he says. And it's worth repeating, I did that on purpose, to ourselves when things are difficult. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can do this. You are the plan with all of your issues and your struggles and your mess-ups, the joke that everybody says about how lightning might strike me if I walk inside the doors of a church, Jesus would not think that joke is funny because they are also the plan. He believes that we can do what he did, that we can live loving God and loving others. And he tells us then to go out and to make disciples. So again, we're not making Christians, we're making disciples. A disciple is just someone who follows so closely to their teacher that they're covered in his dust. They follow so closely. I'm going to live, I'm going to follow each step by step, navigating my relationships and my work and my life the way that Jesus would want me to do it. This is what it means to be a disciple. It doesn't mean having all the answers. It doesn't mean having to be able to quote all of the scriptures. It doesn't mean having, you know, the most faith of anybody that you know. It just means I am following as closely as I can because Jesus called me and invited me and believes that I can do it. It's a big assignment. Go and make disciples of all nations. I think that I wanted to try and figure out a way to simplify this because I think even though I said over and over and over again that it doesn't mean you have to be the most religious person or know everything and all the verses and all the answers, I think that we all still kind of be like, yeah, but I probably got to know most of them, right? Like there's a sense of I have to be religious enough. I have to be spiritual enough. But over and over through the scripture, when Jesus would talk about what this looked like, it wasn't about this high powerful, beautiful, religious process. It's something that he told people to do that my six-year-old loves to do. It's something that all of us did when we were five and six years old at school. It was our favorite part of school. It was called show and tell. Show and tell is something that everyone can do. And this is what Jesus invites for us to do, is to show what's happened in my life. It's not showing that I'm perfect. It's showing that I used to struggle with something and now I've been able to move in a different direction. Or I used to be overwhelmed by this habit or this addiction, but I found freedom. Or this relationship was broken and hurting, but it's actually, it's healed now. Or I used to feel hopeless, but now I kind of have this sense of peace. Showing that things have changed in our hearts or in our minds. Not that I'm perfect, but that something has happened. And then simply telling people, well, I don't know exactly how it all works, but here's some of the bullet points of what happened. I got connected to a person. I went to a church. I started a Bible or going to a Bible study with friends or listening to sermons online or, or whatever it might be. The show and tell. There's actually one, one uh, part in the scriptures. Um, I can't remember what the actual reference is. I want to say it's like John chapter 8, but don't quote me, uh, where uh, there's this man who's demon-possessed, and he comes up to Jesus. Now, I don't know what your issue is, but unless you're demon-possessed, you're probably doing okay. Uh, this man comes up, and Jesus heals him. And the man says to Jesus, can I follow you? Do you know what Jesus said? No. You cannot. 
He didn't want the man to just come and just listen to Jesus' teachings for the rest of his life. He told the man, no, you can't follow me. I want you to go back to your home and tell people what happened. And I love that we get to come to church. I'm here twice a week, so at least twice as holy as the rest of you guys. Uh, I love that we get to do this, and it's an important aspect of our faith, of community and learning and, and being encouraged and challenged. But this is not the goal. It's not, the goal is not to sit in church. The goal is actually the 167 other hours during the week when we're with our family and our friends and our neighborhoods. Jesus doesn't want us just to come and sit here and take in good information he wants us to go and tell people, show people, hey, I love this place. I love this church, this Bible study, this community. They have many pancakes, and they're delicious, and I don't know why, or whatever the thing is. Say, hey, this was great, and I love it, and I want to go back, or I, I go back. I've been a part of it for years. Whatever your story is, you get to show and tell, and it's not this hard thing that you're incapable of. It's this thing that Jesus believes that you can do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa, and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.